Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 to 14 is going to be the text for us this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. A good name is better than than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, but when a, ha- when a face is, a sad, is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools in the house of pleasure It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patient of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good, and it advances to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after. Lord God, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, bless us. And what we are not, make us. In your son's name, amen. When I was growing up in the 90s, there was this cartoon, and I think some of you might know what this is. It's called The Animaniacs. And it was, some of you might be too old to watch this, some of you might be too young to watch it, some of you might be in the, you know, the, the middle where you've grown up watching this cartoon. And if you remember this cartoon, there's a segment in it called Good Idea and Bad Idea. And it's designed to help little kids think about the good ideas in life and what are bad ideas in life. Some of these are silly for the sake of being silly, but others of these are actually useful and helpful to teach kids about how to live in this world. So, for example, they will say this thing like, good idea, uh, hug and kiss your loved ones. That's a good idea. Bad idea, hug and kiss strangers. You see this little kid run up to a stranger and then give him a hug and the stranger like, gets scared and runs away. That's a bad idea. Good idea. Visiting a circus. Bad idea. Have the v- circus visit you. And you see this kid in the living room and all these elephants bust through the door and he's like running scared. I guess some of these are silly, but some of them are helpful, like this one in particular. Good idea. Tossing a coin penny into a fountain as you make a wish. Bad idea, tossing your cousin named Penny into a fountain as you make a wish. 
Now, these little clips are supposed to be funny, and it's designed to teach kids some life lessons about how they can take care of themselves and other people and hope that they don't cause themselves harm or other people harm. And I bring this up as an illustration to just show you that this is kind of what Solomon is doing here in chapter 7. He gets very practical here in how you need to live life. Throughout this entire book so far, it's... This is really a sermon, and he's trying to be philosophical in the first six chapters. He tells you what you need to be, and ultimately that if you do not have God in your life, then you cannot have meaning in your life. This book is written by King Solomon. He was the wisest man. He was the only king in all of Israel history that has basically have control over the entire Jerusalem, the entire Israel. He was unique in his time. He asked God for the ability to discern right and wrong and to teach his people and to lead the the people of God. But yet we know that he failed tremendously. But this book, Ecclesiastes, is really his sermon. He goes around and he's explaining all of his findings in life. Chapter 1, he speaks about just the, the mere existence of living this world, that everything is, is circular in a sense that it just repeats itself over and over again, and that there is nothing new under the sun. Chapter 2, he, he shares his experience about all the pleasures he's acquired in life, whether it's material gains or relationships, whatever it may be, he's done it all, and he concludes that it's completely meaningless. Without God, all of these pleasures are just fleeting and is completely vain. Chapter 3, he then goes to speak about the reality of time and how each and every single one of us will go from one extreme to the other. We'll go from one time of, of great prosperity to a great time of suffering, and that's just normal living in a fallen world, that you go from one end of the extreme to the other end of the extreme. And this should cause us to consider where we are in life to, to fear the Lord. Chapter 4 speaks about how life is in the fallen world is very difficult. And in light of that, the best way to handle life in the fallen world is to have other people that you live with, other people that you have in your life that you can do life with. The very famous passage in this chapter is, um, furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? It's this idea that you need other people in your life. Chapter 5, he begins by speaking about how our attitude toward worship needs to be serious. We need to think clearly before we enter into the house of worship. This is not something to be trifled with. This is not just some sort of a club that you go to. This is a time where you enter and you engage the living God. And it ends with this chapter talking about just how we get these gifts and rewards because God has given this to us. In chapter 6, it talks about how even if you have these things in life, even if you have all the things that God has given you, the only reason why you can even enjoy these things is because God has given you the ability to enjoy it. So God didn't just provide for you the means to enjoy life, but he gives you the ability to enjoy life. And without God, you won't be able to enjoy anything this world has to offer. In chapter 7, you'll notice in your Bibles, some of you in the NASB, it shifts to almost like a little poem. Um, I have heard and have even seen here in this church that the older the pastor gets, they tend to start breaking into song. I, w- I once sat in a Cantonese sermon. Pastor Chan just did just that. He was preaching here, and randomly he just breaks into a hymn. This is what Solomon's doing. He's, he's copying Pastor Chan here. He's saying, he starts singing so that you can remember something about life. And he's trying to teach you a lesson about 
the reality of life. You'll notice as I'm reading through this passage and this portion, the word better shows up multiple times in this, cha- in this portion. And the word better in the, in the Hebrew is the word tov, which is good. But in the original, I mean, we translate it as better, but the original is it's like the word gooder. Gooder. It's not really a word, but the idea is there. And that's why we translate it as better here. It's this idea that there's just something better in life. Some things are better than others. And whatever is better in life is always what God has stated in his word. God defines what's better for us in life. What we think, how we need to live, those things could be good. But those things, what's good, it could be subjective in our own minds. And some of these things... The Stalin points out, there's, it's not like one is particularly sinful and the other is, is better. Some of these things are, are just a comparison between something that's good and something that's better. Solomon is, again, just using these two as a way to just, for you to think about, to balance it in your mind, to choose what is better over what is good. That is my hope for us this morning. My hope for us this morning is that we will choose the better things in life. That yes, there are good things that you could enjoy, that's fine, but if you were the, but the normal characteristic of your life is to choose the better things in life. We understand that. Like what is if you want a better life, you choose the better things. And if you want just good things in life, then just choose the good things. And Solomon presents to you what is good and what is better, and he hopes that you and I today will choose what is better. So if you want to live a better life, choose the better thing. Choose the better things in life. I think all Christians want to live a better life, and the only way you could do that is to choose the better things in life. So much like that cartoon is a good idea and bad idea, I'm going to change that a little bit to good idea and better idea. We're going to use this template as the outline as we go through uh, this entire uh, sermon. So, for example, the first point for us is good idea, choosing cosmetics over character. Better idea, choosing character over cosmetics. So our first point is that you should choose character over cosmetics. The beginning of chapter 7, verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment. Solomon first begins in this little poem that it is better to have a good name than to smell good. Having a good name means that you have a good reputation. Sometimes when you say, when people say your name, it, it, it brings to mind certain connotations, whether it's good or bad. And having that, having a good reputation, is better than smelling good. But why is it smell? Why is it ointment? Why does Solomon here make this comparison? Because wouldn't the opposite be a better comparison? Instead of having a bad reputation, you should have a good reputation. Or it's better to smell good instead of not smelling good. Why does he make this comparison between what is a good reputation versus smelling good? Well, smelling good back then is the idea of, 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 it's actually a sign of luxury. It means that you are wealthy enough to, to take care of yourself. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. Who we are is better than what we look like or what we smell like. Your reputation is attached to your name. When someone brings up your name, again, whatever, whether it be good or bad, it comes up to their mind as well. We understand this in reality as well. When we think about famous people, like if I say the name Abraham Lincoln, what comes to your mind? When I say a name like Adolf Hitler, what comes to your mind? Even fictional characters, if I say Superman, 
what comes to your mind, or Luke Skywalker, or whatever. These names that are often attached to a certain reputation or characteristic, you understand the importance of having a good name. You should care about your reputation more than what you smell like. And what's worse, if you smell bad, but at least you leave with a good impression, or that you smell good, but after you leave, the stench of your bad reputation lingers. Obviously, you'll choose the one with the, you, the, the, the good impression better than smelling good. And this isn't to say that you know, throw away your deodorant or not try to care about your appearance. Solomon is just saying that if we were to focus on one, focus on character. Focus on who you are as, as opposed to what you look like. Fixing a person's appearance is actually rather easy. All you have to do is just go to a mall. You just walk in the mall. You can ask them, hey, I want to look, I want a, a whole makeover. What should I do? And you just give them money and that's good to go. A shopping spree can cure your fashion faux pas. Amen, right? <laughs> but character, having a good name, takes a lifetime to cultivate. And it can even be ruined in an instant. This should show us the value of having a good name. Christians, you and I must care about our character because a good character means that we'll have a good testimony. Your character is linked to your testimony. You cannot expect people to love and desire God or have a good testimony if you have a bad character. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says that God does not look at the outward man like the way the people does. He looks at the inner man. Proverbs 31 warns the ladies that, they, they, that beauty is, is fleeting and charm is deceitful, but the one who, who fears or she is the one that needs to be praised. If you want to live a life, a better life, choose working on your character rather than building your appearance. This verse is a lot, in a lot of ways, just an Old Testament version of the doctrine of sanctification. The more you grow in Christ-likeness, the more you are a draw to the world, the more, the, you're, the, the, the more that you are pleasing to the world in the way that you live. Our purpose as Christians is to be a light to the world, and you must have a godly character in order to do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 reads, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and, those, and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death and to the other an aroma from life to life. Who is adequate for these things? Paul here acknowledges the fact that if you are living a Christ-like life, you're going to be a, 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 a you're going to draw people to the Lord, and our life needs to draw people to Christ. Ephesians chapter five, verse two says, "And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma." We understand the concept of how living life as an act of worship, and you do so by living a godly life. And when you live a godly life, you'll draw people to Christ. This is why even for elder qualification, 1 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that we need, to be, we need to have a good reputation with outsiders. Because in the way that we conduct ourselves, in our character, it will either draw people to Christ or it will make people think that Christianity 
is gross. Let the aroma of a good character be more fragrant than anything that you put on your body. You are a Christian, so smell like Christ. Not only is a not only if you want a better life by choosing character over cosmetics or clothing, but it's also better for you to choose being at a funeral over being a place of fun. It's a good idea. Choosing fun over a funeral. Here's a better idea. Choosing a funeral over fun. Look at the last half of verse 1. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Your birthday is important, but not nearly as important than the day that you will die. You know when you're born because you have a birth certificate that you can look at, but only the Lord knows when you're going to die. Our birthday marks the beginning of our life here on earth, but our death day marks the beginning of eternity. And Solomon already has eternity in mind. Chapter 3, verse 11, he said, He has made everything appropriate in this time. He, God, has set eternity in, the, in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He, Solomon, understands the value of going to a funeral rather than going to a party. It's probably because he's gone through both and he realizes that going to a funeral or a place of mourning strikes him a lot more. Verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. It is better to go to a place where there is sadness because it forces you to take life seriously. There's just more lessons to be learned there. It's a better teacher and you'll notice in chapter 2, verse 2, it says a house of feasting. This isn't to say that you can't go to a buffet. Well, first of all, all the buffets are closed. So this is not talking about that. It's talking about just a place where there's just a lot of fun and just party life. This verse seems very grim. Solomon is saying that going to a place where death is highlighted is better than going to a place where people go to party. I once in college went to a funeral right after a wedding. Now, I only remember a little bit about the wedding. I remember the food. I remember Chick-fil-A. I don't remember who I was sitting with because I was focused on the Chick-fil-A. And I don't even remember the day of. I was thinking, how am I supposed to dress myself for a, for a wedding and then a funeral? See, I was focusing on the wardrobe thing and not character here. Learn from my mistakes. But I don't remember, aside from those little small trivial things, I don't remember much about the wedding. But I remember the funeral afterwards. I remember the look in the face of the dad that lost their son. I remember looking the, the the face of the friends that, that, were, that were speaking about him. You know, at a wedding, when you know, generally people at a wedding, when they look at people on the altar, they're thinking, some when you're single, you might be thinking, Oh, when will it be my time? When will I make a vow with someone? When will I stand at the altar and, and kiss that significant other? But you have to understand that for some of us, we will never get to that altar. But for a funeral, you will be there one day. You may not make it to the altar, but you will be in a box one day where people will gather and remember your life. We will all die one day. And Solomon instructs us to go to a house of mourning because it makes us focus on eternity. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And this is just the reality of life. If you're sad, you can at least be made happy. But if you're happy, there's only one other way. That's the sadness. You can't be happy and be happy happier. 
It's just if you're happy, there's only one way, one other direction to go. And Solomon is saying just more profitable being in a place of sadness because at least you could be made to be happy, that you can think about eternal things. Verse 4, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. A wise person can see that hard times will make them think about life more seriously. If you spend your entire life just going from one house party to another, to one house of a pleasure to, to another, then you're really building your life on a house of cards. All it takes is just a little puff of air and everything will collapse. If you're trying to constantly find pleasure, then you are a fool. It is better for you to go to places that cause you to think more seriously about life than for you to amuse yourself to death. The house of mourning trains you to think about eternity. Psalm chapter 90 tells us, this is a psalm that pleads with the Lord to teach us to number our days. If you're constantly thinking about trying to have fun, you're simply distracting yourself from reality and eternity. Dwelling on eternity makes you think about the present more seriously, more soberly, and with solemnity. It is in light of eternity that makes you a wiser decision maker. That's how you can live a better life when you're thinking about eternal things by learning from the house of mourning. If you aren't thinking about death rightly, you're not going to live right, life rightly. It will make you think about your hobbies differently. It will think, make you think about your ministry differently. It will make you think about marriage differently. It will make you think about your schooling and your work and parenting. Everything will be changed the moment you think about Life from an eternal perspective. And funerals shows us the brevity of life. It gives you clarity. It forces you to prioritize the things in your life. Live life with anticipation of death. We can learn more from the house of mourning than we do from the house of pleasure. So if you want to live a better life, Choose character over your clothing. Choose going to a house of mourning or a funeral over a house of fun. But third, choose correction over comedy. It's a good idea. Choosing comedy over correction. Better idea, choosing correction over comedy. Verse 5, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Wise people seek wisdom. And one way to gain wisdom is to be confronted, is to have someone that's wiser than you correct you. A wise person is open to rebuke because they know that there are things that they need to work on. They know that they need to grow. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Solomon makes a contrast between have, about hearing rebuke versus hearing the songs of fools. Some of us would just love to just go on Spotify or iTunes, just listen to a whole catalog from our favorite artists who, you know, really they're just songs of fools, than to ever hear even one rebuke from a wise person. The songs of fools can lie to us about reality while the rebuke of a wise person shows us how reality is and how life truly is to live there's only one kind of person that chooses a a rebuke and that is a wise person wise people love correction even if it doesn't feel good when it's happening 
they love it because they know that it helps them improve. They're thankful for the people that are pointing things out so that they can actually grow. You can tell if a person's wise based on how they take a rebuke. When was the last time you were rebuked by someone? Rather, maybe more precisely, when was the last time that you were rebuked by someone that you actually took it to heart? Because a fool can get confronted all the time. A fool gets confronted quite often. They're told that they're a fool. But what makes the difference between a fool and a wise person is that a wise person, they get rebuked and they actually change. Whereas a fool, they get rebuked and do nothing about it. And oftentimes a fool will just drown out the reality of, their, of being confronted with just songs of fools. Verse 6, 4, as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. And this too is futility. This is referring just to just the background noise. You know, that when you hear these songs of fools, it's just, it's just background noise. There's no substance. This is to show that, uh, you know, it's comparing the laughter of fools to, to the sound of a rebuke. These songs, they don't offer much other than just making noise. People that only love to laugh will not take anything seriously. <clears throat> and this is seen as foolish. Better to choose correction over comedy. We naturally get defensive. We shut people down when they tell us something that we don't want to hear. If someone confronts you, learn to see this as a grace of God, that God is trying to reveal something about you that you need to work on. Learn to be humble and to listen. When you get rebuked, <clears throat> this is how you can tell who, uh, who you can tell who genuinely do care about you. Be suspicious if you have people in your life that claims to love you, but they never confront you at all. Because that shows you that they may not really love you, faithful of the wounds of a friend. Solomon wants the listener to welcome the correction of the wise. So if you want to live better, learn to take correction. <clears throat> We've gone over better. Uh, it's better to have good character than to have good, good clothing. It's better to have a funeral than go to a place of fun. It's better to have correction than comedy. And next, choose integrity over outcome. So good idea, you choose outcome over integrity. A better idea is that you choose integrity over outcomes. Choose integrity over outcomes. Look at verse 7. For... Oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. This is Solomon saying that there is a breaking point for the wise man. It is possible that any of us can be corrupted. A person who is under oppression or or <clears throat> under oppression can struggle to you know whether to keep their integrity. They may want to compromise. Solomon says that a bribe can corrupt a person's heart. And Solomon's here, when you see the word oppression, bribery, these are actually political words. And it's intended to speak about those that are in power that are trying to corrupt us. Convictions aren't convictions if they are easily compromised. Solomon's saying that sometimes hard times can cause people to want to consider foregoing what they know to be true, to give up the integrity, especially if it means that they're going to lose from, uh, from the oppression. This means some people might even give up, violate their own conscience, knowing what is right and wrong for the sake of some sort of gain. But why? Again, it's for desired outcomes. Bribes are given to people in hopes that the people that's receiving the bribe could get some advantage that they would not have if they did not get the bribe. 
understand that all of us may be tempted to take a bribe and in, so, in, in doing so, giving, give up our integrity. You, you hear the phrase, everyone has a price. And some people are willing to give up their character if they are given a big enough incentive to do so. But yet bribery in the Old Testament and the New is considered wrong. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19. It reads, you shall not distort justice, you shall not be partial, and you shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. That's why you should not take a bribe, because the reason why you do it is going to make you it's going, to, it's going to make you think what's right is wrong, what's wrong is right. It's going to corrupt your thinking. Some of you may not take monetary bribes, but you may be tempted to compromise in other areas of your life. Some of you might compromise for things like status or success or sex, because you think that those things are great to give up. You may be tempted to give up your integrity for those things. And Solomon is trying to warn you, do not take this path. You'll notice this is in, in the beginning of verse 7, it said that for oppression makes a wise man mad. He's saying that a wise person can make foolish decisions. This again means that wisdom is not foolproof. Solomon is the obvious example. Why do you think he had a thousand women in his life? Yes, it said that it was for, his, for the pleasure. He enjoyed them. His heart clung to them. But part of it was that he wanted the political connections. You know, it's hard to go to war with your in-laws. I know some of you are probably at war with your in-laws, but, you know, it wasn't like a real, like, missile war kind of thing. And Solomon thought, well, if I have all of these ladies and I'm married to all their daughters, then I'm going to have all of this land, all of this protection. And he thought that success came from all these women as opposed to the Lord. He found that his women was going to protect him as opposed to God. And this, again, it shows you how foolish he was, but it shows us, too, that a wise person can be corrupted. It's just a warning that even the wisest person can make very foolish decisions, and that's possible for each and every single one of us here. What areas can you see this week that may cause you to at least tempt you to give up your integrity for the sake of some sort of success in life? What shortcuts are you taking in hopes that you get a, a better paycheck or a better grade in your class? Jesus said, what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? It's hard to hold on to your integrity, especially if you may not be as successful in life because of it. It's not bad to want to work hard and be successful, but just don't give up your integrity for it. Students, that means that for you, you need to work hard and you don't want to do things that might compromise your character for sake of a good grade. Some of you who are working right now, you don't want to give up your morals so that you can, you know, keep, so they can pay you more or, that you, or prevent you from being fired. You may be challenged to hold to the world's standards so you, don't, so you may not be canceled. You may be urged to give up godly integrity so you could gain acceptance in the world. And Solomon is trying to tell you, do not walk down that path. Don't give up integrity to, just to get ahead in life. We all live to the audience, and for the audience of one, and that is our God. It's, it is only his opinion of us. It's only his view of us that matters most. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patient of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. 
And this is true. The end of things are always better. If you don't believe that, you should ask a marathon runner. They'll tell you the beginning is all nerve-wracking and the entire race is terrible. But when they cross that finish line, that Gatorade poured all over them, that is the delight. Because the end of the matter is better than the beginning. And Solomon is saying that we, don't, we won't know the result of things. Of whatever matter, we just wait for it to be played out. Just wait and see. And I think here in the context, Solomon is really speaking about how do you live in a world where there are corrupted leaders in our life. And Solomon instructs us to just wait. Just see the matter through. If you are patient, then it means you're humble. And this is why there's this contrast here between a prideful person and an, and a, and a impatient person. Prideful people are contrasted to impatient people because prideful people think that they know what's best and want their outcome to, be, to come immediately. There's no trust in God. Don't trust the immediate perspective. There is wisdom here and just being patient. All of us are capable of thinking that we know what the future holds, but yet we're all incapable of actually knowing definitively what the future holds. Yet we sometimes act in terms of world events and the people that are leading us. We, we criticize them as if we know what's best. But in reality, that's just your own pride talking. Notice that the patient of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. People assume who, that they know what's best, that they know how things should be run, that, that they have this policy in place or this politician there, that it's all good. But no, that's just your own pride talking. It's where patience here, it's in the Hebrew, it's basically having a long nose. And it's not physical, it's not, you know, Jewish people have big noses, that's not, that's not what he's trying to refer to here. But what he's saying is that having a long nose is a picture of someone that is just patient. God is described in this way. He's described to have a long nose. And why is it this picture? It's because when you have a long nose, it just means that you're, you know, it's like flat nose. But when you're angry, you tend to like kind of scrunch up, right? Your nose gets all wrinkly and when you're angry. That's usually what happens. And he's saying that don't have that anger. Be patient. Wait. So the question you should ask yourself, do you have this patience? Do you have a long nose? Because this is what God has, and he demands that of us, and he has that in his own character as well. We're called to be like God in this way, and we need to be patient. So we're called to trust God. Trust God's timing in all things. Verse 9, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Godly people are not controlled by anger. James chapter 1, verse 20 tells us that the, right, that the, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So don't lash out. Don't tweet things or post things that shows that you're a very angry person. A wise person is not vexed or grieved by what's going on in the world. They don't care if the world is corrupted because we already know what the end is going to be. As Christians, we have the Bible. And if you don't know how the Bible ends, you go to adult too. They're going through the book of Revelation. You know at the very end that Jesus is going to win and Jesus reigns. So don't worry because all of the injustice that holds on in the world, they'll eventually be done away with. Trust in the Lord. Be patient in his timing. You know, we live in a very highly political age, and it's unfortunate that our culture is so acceptance of just being angry at one another. Whatever political party that you're in, they're almost encouraged to be angry at the other side. And that's a mark of our nation, that our nation is foolish, that we love to be so angry at everyone. Our love, the world loves and is moved by anger, but as, the, as Christians living in a fallen world, don't be moved by it. We need to wait on the Lord. Don't be surprised if, if corrupted leaders act corruptly. Be patient. 
and trust in the Lord. Later on in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, Solomon writes, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath is before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. This is the word of the king is authoritative. Who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? This is the reality of life. You can't dictate what the king is going to do because God is ultimately in control. God will decide how a nation goes. So trust in the Lord. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this, in a lot of ways, this verse reminds me, it's like an Old Testament version of that, that just trust in the Lord. Know that God is working all things out for the good of his people to those who love him. Choose to maintain a godly integrity instead of being angry that the outcome that you want is not here. Trust the Lord. Don't worry about the, what the world has to do. Just see to the end of it. So far, we've gone through uh, how we need to choose a better name and how, how we should choose going to house of mourning, how we need to choose rebuke, and how we need to choose integrity. And our next point, choose now over nostalgia. So good idea, choose nostalgia over now. Better idea, choose now over nostalgia. Choose now over nostalgia. Verse 10, do not say, why is that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. This verse is convicting and is, and is a greater temptation for us here that are older. The older you get, the more nostalgic you become. You keep talking about the good old days. My daughter did that the other day. She said, oh, back then it was so great. It's like, back then for you, it was three years ago. <laughs> but yes, as we get older, we do that, don't we? We're tempted to always look back and say, oh, those were the better days. In every area of life, we're all tempted to do that. We think about ministry, how the, the golden days of the church was this era. We think about music. We think, oh, the best music was in the 70s and the next generation. Oh, the 80s and then you young people or this or that. You know, eventually you'll get old and people will look back at your music and think, oh, wow, you're so old. You listen to that music? And you're going to be offended by it. And you're going to say, no, that's when music was really real. I just know someone else will say the same thing. We can all be tempted to look back and think that the present day, everything's all dreary and depressing. The only people that I think can objectively say this, that the past was better, was Adam and Eve, because they were in paradise. They were with God. They had food just coming out of trees, and it was great. Then Satan and, you know, ruined everything. They're the only ones that can say that the past was better. But for all of us, because of the deceptive nature of our own hearts and our own sinfulness, we think the past is better than what it really is. We say things like the grass is greener on the other side. But just understand that the reason why the grass is greener is because there's a lot more fertilizer that's used. It is neither wise or mature or even godly to be overly obsessed about the past. Be all in now because you know that there's nothing you could do about the past. You, have no, you can't change the past. And, you, there's, and, for, and there's no certainty what the future may hold. So you'll go all out. Live in the present. You're only control of what is going on in the present, but you can't change the past or the future Dwelling in the past stunts your growth. 
And you know that phrase, I've heard this from some of you, that you cannot teach a dog new tricks. Well, my response is that you're not a dog, so get over it. You can learn new things. The only reason why you don't want to is because you're looking at the past and thinking about that's the only way that you need to do life. That's the only way you do ministry. That's the only way you need to work. That's the only way, whatever. You look back at the past and you think so fondly of it and you and your pride stuns your own growth. It's, it's pride that makes you dwell in the past. And sometimes we think the past is so great, but it, we have to understand that our past sometimes is not as great as it was. Right, we I, you know, use like a movie example. Sometimes there's all these remakes nowadays, and we say, back then's movie was so great, the original was better, and then you watch it again, it's like, no, it's not. The graphics were terrible. I could see the strings. I, I know what's going on. The ter- special effects were terrible. Or you think about a restaurant. Oh, the food used to be so great back then, and then you try it. It's like, it's not that great anymore. Oh, it's because the old chef was better. See, this is the language of a fool. You're looking back, and you forget, and you forsake the thing that's going on in the present. You know, we're going through the book of Numbers when Pastor Henry's preaching, and spoiler for some of you, they're going to complain, and it's just amazing what they're complaining about. At one point, they're going to complain about fish. It's like, oh man, back in Egypt, it was so great. Was, they're just a plentiful of fish. Like, that's the only thing that they're thinking about. They forgot the fact that they were slaves. Like, they're thinking, oh yeah, I, we, had, we get to grill fish, we get to have sashimi. You're thinking about all of these stupid things about fish, but they forget the fact that they were oppressed by these Egyptians. They're so overly obsessed with fish that they forget the the freedom that they have in God. Their discontentment and their pride are linked together. And that's how it is with us too. The reason why we're discontent is because we're prideful. They're all related. Because you ultimately think that you deserve better and the better thing is up in the past. Remember that you have this day today because God has given that to you. Enjoy the moment that you have in this life. Stop dwelling on the past that you cannot change. Some of the greatest experiences in life are lost because you won't let go of the past. Some of the greatest ministry opportunities are gone because people are so focused on yesteryear. And some of the greatest blessings in the present are overlooked because they can't overlook the past blessings. Now, understand, I'm not saying that you can't remember the past. The Bible instructs us to remember God's blessing. The only problem is that you think all your blessing is in the past and there's nothing else for you in the present and in the future. We know that's not true. The Bible is very clear that we have an eternal blessing waiting for us in heaven. So we at least have something to look forward to. But even in the present, we get to enjoy this life. We go all in on the moment that we have now. If you're stuck in the past, your life is not going to get any better. If you want to live a better life, Live in the now and not in the nostalgia. Our sixth point, choose wisdom over wealth. Choose wisdom over wealth. So a good idea is that you choose wealth over wisdom. A better idea is that you choose wisdom over wealth. Good idea. You choose wealth over wisdom. Better idea, you choose wisdom over wealth. Verse 11, wisdom along with inheritance is good, and it advantages those who see the sun. There's a contrast here between wisdom and wealth. Most people think that as long as they have wealth and they'll be protected. And Solomon is saying that there is a better protection for you, and that is wisdom. Wisdom protects you better than money. Money without wisdom will wreck your life. If you have all the money in the world, but you don't have wisdom on how you can manage it, you're going to ruin your life. Money accompanied by wisdom is the ideal formula. You want wisdom married with money in order for it to work. Most people want money without wisdom. 
Now I wonder, you know, I was driving to the East Bay yesterday and there was this huge billboard that said the lottery, $90 million or something like that. But I wonder if that was switched. If there was a lottery for wisdom, how many of you would buy a ticket? How many would you think, oh, if I could gain that much wisdom, I would go for it? Verse 11. Wisdom along with a good inheritance is the advantage of those who see the sun. Money is great when combined with wisdom. The fool will squander all their money because they have no wisdom. A wise person will know how to manage their money. Verse 12, for wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is the wisdom uh, preserved for the lives of its possessors. The interesting that money and wisdom, are they're all, both here as described as protection. There's a little wordplay going on here. Because at the end of verse 11, it says, and the advantage of those who see the sun. Uh, or even this phrase that's common throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that everything under the sun is the idea of this heat. That you're living under the sun. And the word protection it actually means the word shade. So saying wisdom and money are the shade that you could hide under. They protect you. This is how having wisdom and wealth is good. If they're, if they're together, you can have an advantage in life. But if you were only to choose one, if you were only to just narrow down to one, Choose wisdom. Wisdom is always superior because it, because it guarantees something that wealth cannot. Wealth can be depleted during hard times, but wisdom will never run dry. If, for example, I, I turn into a leprechaun and I say, hey, here's a pot of gold and a little rainbow flying into it. And I say, you can choose a pot of gold or you can have a meal with the wisest person that you can think of or wisest person that is alive. So if you're a musician and you want to learn from the best pianist or flute player or whatever or trombone or triangle, you can, yeah, I want to have lunch with that person or tech or whatever. Find the wisest person that in your field that you want to learn. You have a one-hour lunch versus a pot of gold. Which would you choose? Now, I know because of this message, you're going to think, okay, Pastor Real, so choose the wisdom one. No, 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 no. Wisdom tells you to get the gold, and then once you get the gold, buy this guy at lunch with your gold. <laughs> And you have both. See, that's wisdom right there. You know that you can use, you know how to use wisdom to your advantage. That's what a wise person does. They know how to use things that God has given them to its full potential. That's how you can live a better life. Wisdom teaches you how to navigate through this world. And if you don't have wisdom, but you have money, you're just going to ruin your life. So choose the most obvious thing. Choose wisdom first so you can have an advantage in this life, so you can have protection in this life. It's better to choose wisdom over wealth. It's better to choose character over your clothing. It's better to choose being in a funeral over a house of fun. It's, it's good to choose. It's better to choose confrontation over comedy. It's better to choose integrity over outcomes. It's better to choose now over nostalgia. It's better to choose wisdom over wealth. And lastly, it's better to choose God's perspective over a human perspective. So good idea. Choosing the human perspective over God's perspective. A better idea, choosing God's perspective over the human perspective. Verse 13, consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. Solomon repeats a similar concept that he's revealed throughout this entire book. Chapter 1, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. Chapter 3, verse 12, for I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. 
Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. Chapter 8, verse 17. I saw every work of God. I conclude that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Chapter 11, verse 5, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. We can only consider and ponder all that God has done. We can never dictate what goes on in life. Psalm invites us to that, to invite us to, to think, to meditate, and to contemplate how God has worked throughout our lives and in history. It says here, who was able to straighten what he has bent? And the answer is no one. Whatever God decides will come to pass. Verse 14, the day of prosperity, be happy. But in day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. This is how you can live a better life. In the moment of prosperity, enjoy it. In the times of very great difficulty, don't be self-loathing. Don't be focusing on your own perspective about things. Focus on God's perspective. Look to how God is doing all things. Consider that he's in control of this as well. We don't know when God will allow one or the other, but we know that God will allow both at some point in our life. Solomon is teaching us right now how to respond. This is similar to what Job has said in Job chapter 2. You're familiar with the story of Job. When he lost everything, his wife told him to curse God and die. And his response was this. You speak as one of the foolish women who speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all of this, Job did not sin. Job chapter 5, verse 7. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. The one God forming light and creating darkness, causing, causing well-being and creating calamity. I, Yahweh, who does all things. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 38. It is, is, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forward? Christians, you and I must be aware of God's sovereign hand in all things. If you want to live a better life, understand and see things from an eternal perspective, then that's when you understand, that's where you can grow in your trust in the Lord. God prevents us from knowing what the future has to hold, and that's why we need to have this eternal perspective about this life. This isn't dismissing the hurt that we go through, but it's just for us to think rightly and better about life when we have an eternal perspective. In the day of prosperity, enjoy this life. Be happy. But just know that, the, that those days will end and someday adversity will come. And when those moments come, think about the eternal, eternality of God and his eternal purposes. God has made one as well as the other. Better to have a good look at life and have a good perspective than to have a human perspective. Because a human perspective is always going to focus on the why. And the godly perspective, the eternal perspective, is not focused on why which is trusting him, but when? When, Lord, are you going to uh, um, fulfill your plans? This is a complete peace in the Lord. You trust in him because you know that he has your life in his hands. 
Better to look at life from a God's perspective than our own. So we look through all of these different perspectives. It's better to have a good, godly character than clothing. Better to have, uh, go to a house of, uh, of mourning or funeral than a house of fun. Better to be confronted than to have comedy. Better to have integrity over success or outcomes. Better to have now over nostalgia. Better to have wisdom over wealth. And lastly, it's better to have God's perspective rather than our own. Choose the better thing in this life if you want to live a better life. Choose the insights from the Lord. But you know what's better than actually just learning about God and to have knowledge of God? is to be known by God. You know, you can be here today and you have no clue who God is. Some of you guys have been in church for a long time. You have an entire boatload in your mind about who God is, but it has not changed your heart because you don't, you're not truly known by God. You do things, you know, you acquire biblical knowledge for sake of just acquiring biblical knowledge but you don't know or love God because God doesn't know you. And the only way for you to really apply this message or any message that you hear is you need to have a right relationship with the Lord. You need to be reconciled to him because all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us deserve judgment, but God has provided a better way for us. God has provided us a means for us we can get to heaven, to be made right with him so that we can enjoy not just a better life now, but a better future for us. Because without the Lord, the only thing we will have is judgment from the Lord. We, we, we deserve to be thrown into fire and judgment in hell, and God has provided a better way. And that is not by trusting in your own work. It's not by going to church. not by singing praises. It's not by any of those things. It's to trust in him. It's to repent of your good works and trust in the, in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Believing that he died on the cross for us and he rose again three days later. And that that's the only way that we can live the better life that God has prescribed to us in his word. Trust in him and him alone. It's by faith that you're saved, not by some works that you think you could achieve in this life. It is only by that, it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that you can live your better life now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we know and we're thankful for your word in, in reminding us that the better way is your way and that our own short-sightedness and things that we think, whatever we think that our life is, it's, it's fleeting. Lord, we pray that you can convict us and for us that are a genuinely believer, may we always choose a better thing. May we strive to, to live life in a way that is pleasing to you by always choosing what you want as opposed to what we want. And Lord, even though there may be moments where the things that we want may feel good, um, Lord, we want to choose the things that's better because we want to be more like your son who always chose a better way, even if it meant the death of himself, that he did your will and not his own. Lord, keep us from that. Keep us from wanting to do our own way and to trust and instead trusting in you. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you today or those who are just playing Christianity. Um, I pray, Lord, that you convict them, that you can use this message to convict them that their life, that they think it's good, is not good because there's none that's good except for you and your son. And may they repent of their self-righteousness or they repent of as this false conversion that they have and they learn to truly have a saving relationship with you. Thank you for allowing us to be together to worship you today. In your son's precious name, amen.